Good morning. Wow. All right. Hey, uh, I don't get to do this all that often, so I want to make sure I introduced myself. If you don't know me, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. Uh, Pastor Eric has taken some time off this week to spend with his family, so I get to fill in and open God's word with you. Um, one of the, the things that, that I've gotten to do in my time here is lead the youth missions trip that goes to the Czech Republic, and we're preparing to go back at the end of the summer for our third English camp over there. I can't say enough about sort of how awesome this trip is and how exciting uh, the work that God is doing over there and just the way that he's beginning uh, to really bring the gospel to a dark country is, is just exciting. Uh, I've appreciated Bethel's been a, a great support to our, our missions trips these previous years. Uh, we rewarded um, the church with the first ever choreographed dance up on stage as our way of saying thank you for that or uh, and just warning, if you don't come to church, you don't know what you're going to miss. I mean, it could be something like that. Uh, but just to clarify, I will not dance for you today under any circumstances. Uh, <laughs> an unexpected sadness. Um, if you have any interest in, in helping support this year's team, the first opportunity, it's, it's up there on the slide. It's coming this Saturday, and we're having a dessert auction here at the church. Uh, there's details in the bulletin. Uh, as well. Uh, we're looking for people to sign up to help uh, drop off some desserts, bring some desserts that can be auctioned. Uh, there's been some, some fantastic desserts uh, that we've got to auction off in the past. That's one way that you can help. Uh, another way and a, a really important way that you can help is to show up and come to it. Uh, come hungry and, and bring your wallets and, uh, and support uh, by purchasing some of the delicious desserts uh, that will be present. Uh, it's just a really fun night and a chance to hear more about the trip and, and why the people are going and what's going on over in the, the Czech Republic and why we feel called uh, to that area and what is English camp and, and some of those questions. So great night of fellowship, and, and I would invite you to join us or participate in one of those ways. So. But before we, we dive in, let me pray for our time together this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we, as we sung together, we said, if... Our God is for us. God, you are for us. Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, you are with us. Uh, and we get to come together today under that good reality. God, help us to submit to your word, to have a willingness to, to listen, a willingness to grow, a willingness to learn, a willingness to change, Lord, uh, as you call us to that. God, may our time together uh, under your word be a blessing to us all, and may you use this time for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' very powerful name. Amen. All right. Raise your hand if you've ever complained that one of Pastor Eric's sermons was too long. That's courage. All right. I noticed not a lot of other hands went up. You did not swear on a Bible as you walked in this morning, but I will remind you, if you look below you, you're probably sitting on one, so just bear that in mind. Um, every, every job has its perks and its drawbacks. Uh, one of the things that I really love about my job is that I get to harass Pastor Eric about all sorts of things, uh, but one of my personal favorites is whenever his sermons run long. Um, I joke with him about his lack of hair. He jokes with me about my abundance of hair. I make fun of him for his long sermons. He makes fun of me for my short statue. So it's just a beautiful, 
Christ-like, loving, Christian, brotherly love relationship, and uh, we really enjoy it. Um, While Eric was gone this week, he suggested that I cover 69 verses about this guy named Jesus, uh, which, no big deal, right? Um, I hope I'm not the only one here that sees what he's trying to do. Uh, He's trying to set me up for like a 50-minute marathon sermon so that I I have no footing to stand on anymore as I harass him. Um, Let me remind you uh, that he covered 16 verses last week and 12 verses the week before that. Um, Just saying. Um, So I just want to warn you when we hit the second half of the sermon and I start talking about twice as fast as I'm talking now, uh, and I talk plenty fast as it is, uh, I've got a lot riding on on getting this one in under the the time limit uh, that's given. So I hope hope as I say that that you can can hear the sarcasm in that. If not, it's going to be a long Sunday for you. Uh, We never want to rush our time together in the Word of God. Uh, We always want to take the time required to explain the Bible clearly and accurately. But with that said, we've got a lot of ground to cover today, so we're going to get to work. Uh, Let me start off with just a a disclaimer about today's message. We're going to cover a lot of miracles by Jesus today. Uh, And I hope that the significance of the miracles performed isn't lost in the quantity By covering several of them at once, we don't want to downplay the individual awesomeness of what Jesus did in those specific moments. But we want to sort of pull back to a bird's eye view so we can see how those individual miracles fit into the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing at this point in his ministry. We're going to breeze through significant miracles like Jesus calming the storm, and that could very easily be a a fantastic sermon all by itself. You've probably heard a good one on it before. Each miracle we're going to look at today is significant, but I hope that you walk out of here seeing the the bigger picture instead of just a list of miracles that Jesus is capable of. We're going to begin today at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll start in Matthew chapter 8 if you have your Bible and you want to go ahead and turn there. Jesus has just concluded Uh, the greatest sermon ever, and a swarm of people are following after him. And a key phrase that occurs at the end of chapter 7 to pick up as we transition, it says that the people noticed that Jesus taught as one who had authority. Jesus had established his authority through his teaching. And Matthew is painting a picture for us of King Jesus, as you see the the graphic up there on the slide. Um, So the king had to lay down the authoritative rules for his kingdom, and that's what the Sermon on the Mount was. But now we're going to transition into the king exercising and acting on that authority. Miracles are going to serve as external displays of Jesus' messianic authority amongst his people. And we're going to see today that Jesus' authority is going to invade a lot of different areas of life. Matthew starts off by, by showing us that Jesus demonstrated authority over lots of things, and the first one is leprosy. Matthew chapter 8, picking up in verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and said, I am willing, he said, 
but be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So here we start to see that transition from talking in the last chapter to action in this chapter. And Surrounded by a, a crowd, Jesus is approached by a man with leprosy. And I don't know what your level of familiarity is with leprosy. I knew it was a, a bad thing. Um, but just reading about it this week was just reminded of the atrocity uh, that, it, that it is uh, and how terrible it was to truly have uh, this condition. Um, you were completely cut off from society. You were alive, but you were treated as if you were dead. I found this interesting. It said, in the Middle Ages, if a, if a man became a leper, he went to the church and the priest performed a funeral for him while he was still alive. Jewish rules outlawed contact with lepers and the only thing considered more unclean than contact with a leper was contact with a dead body and it wasn't by a lot. There's documentation of one rabbi bragging about throwing stones at a leper that got too close to him. Lepers knew their place. They knew to stay away. They wouldn't dare come near somebody. But this man, against all that he had been taught, had the courage to approach Jesus. And Jesus had the authority and the willingness to heal this man. Jesus said, in my kingdom, he said, gracious love for this man supersedes the cultural barriers that were placed around him. He's going to break through those barriers for the sake of this man. And it closes it with verse 4 where Jesus tells him to keep what had happened a secret. Now, why do you think that Jesus told him not to tell anyone? Are, are we perhaps disobeying Jesus by talking about it this morning? Any marketing manager would tell you, this is a great opportunity for some positive PR early in the ministry. Time to start getting the word out. Where's social media when you need it? Start the hashtag heal a leper. If you don't know what that means, ask the nearest young person when we're done today. (laughs) Jesus was establishing his kingly authority and his goal was not to become a countryside miraculous attraction. His goal wasn't merely attention. His goal was much bigger than that. And also, as we see by the end of today, opposition is going to start to get pretty hot. And he's not going to bring things to the climax until the appointed time. And so Jesus tells this man not to tell anyone. We'll continue. Verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. 
Uh, we see the, the centurion was a Gentile and Jesus was a Jew. And so that made this interaction between the two of them Surprising. It made his faith in Jesus surprising. According to the Jewish law, uh, a Jew could not enter the house of a Gentile, for all Gentile dwelling places were considered unclean. You actually see a little bit of this in Jesus' reaction in verse 7. Shall I come and heal him? You're inviting me into your house? Do you know the rules? But this man responds and he points to Jesus' authority and he compares his own authority over soldiers to that authority of Jesus who comes from the Father. He says, you have so much authority, you don't even have to break the rules to heal my servant. You don't even have to come. You can just say it. And so Jesus commends this man quite highly, in fact, and then demonstrates his authority to heal the paralysis of the servant, even from great distance. So in this miracle, Jesus is showing a willingness to cross over a national barrier. He recognized faith over nationality. He wasn't going to let the fact that this man was was a Gentile stop him. Jesus wasn't just going to be the king of the Jews. His authority would spread to all people. So we see the the third miracle in this group in verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So here we see Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law from a fever Uh, This would have been more than just a a common cold. Uh, There were several illnesses that were prevalent at this time in this area that could have produced a sustained fever, malaria being a a likely uh, cause of it. And it sounds wrong to say that that it was sort of a boring miracle, but it it seems certainly more plain uh, and simple than the first two that we looked at. And Jesus did not just heal her so that she would come and wait on him. Uh, The point of note in this particular miracle is that Jesus heals a woman and that he breaks through a gender barrier that was presently there. Uh, The first century world didn't view women on equal ground to men, but Jesus did. And her response of, of tending to him was her grateful appreciation for the immediate healing. So we see the thing that ties all three miracles together is that Jesus demonstrates authority over societal barriers. Jesus crossed over culturally accepted barriers to deliver healing in unexpected places. It didn't matter where they started from. It didn't matter in what condition Jesus found them. You could say he wasn't a big fan of pre-existing conditions. Jesus' authority wasn't going to be hemmed in by any cultural boundary that he was expected by others to maintain. When John 3.16 famously says, Jesus was sent to the whole world, he was going to have to cross some boundaries to do it. But Jesus is just getting warmed up today. Uh, Verse 18, Jesus also demonstrated authority in other areas. When Jesus saw that the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. The crowd is still with him, so Jesus gives orders to leave and and cross the lake. Um, Jesus is about to leave when he's approached boldly uh, by a teacher that says, I will follow you wherever you go. And instead of saying, oh, awesome, dude, jump in, grab an oar. Do you know how to lead a small group? Jesus responds, you sure about that? It's not all miracles and revival from here going forward. It's going to get hard, like really hard. So another guy expresses interest in following, but, but he has some family business to take care of first. But Jesus tells him that the chance to serve the king doesn't come along often. We tend to maybe prefer to serve when it's convenient. Serving the king is going to have sacrifice. But the honor and the importance of serving the king takes precedence. Being a disciple meant doing it the king's way under his authority. Verse 23, Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, this is one of those miracles that we like uh, so much. We can sometimes fall in love uh, with the analogy and miss the reality of the miracle. We can forget the miraculous nature of the fact that Jesus calmed a real storm. The geography of that region lends itself to to quick storms sort of rising up uh, there on the lake. Um, But in the boat, Jesus had a few experienced fishermen on his team, and and their experience on the water and experience in boats lends itself to to validating uh, the ferocity of this storm. It's like when a longtime Alaskan says, it's cold. (laughs) Like that carries more weight. Like if you just moved here from Texas and you're like, brr, like we don't believe you yet. Like you don't know what cold is. This storm was terrifying and presumably life-threatening. Now this is the part where you're like, I wouldn't have been scared. I wouldn't have woke Jesus. Yes, you would have. Yes, you would have. So first Jesus rebukes them and then he rebukes the storm. He says, you of little faith, ouch. But little faith's better than no faith, so, you know, you win some, you know. (laughs) The storm ceases instantly. And this wasn't their first miracle with Jesus. We already talked about a couple. Clearly, this one caught their attention. What kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. You could rephrase that. What kind of authority does this man have? Verse 28. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, the two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding and The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. 
So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off and went into the town and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Jesus puts on a display of his authority over Satan and demons. All it took was the word go, and they left and they went where he wanted them to. Jesus' power extends beyond just the physical realm of what people can see. Even those things unseen fell under his authority. Uh, The people's response is to beg him to leave because Jesus' power and authority scared them. And it's not a totally unreasonable conclusion. Similar to the amazing, the amazed words of the disciples after the storm, Jesus is like nothing that anyone has ever seen before. So Jesus leaves. Moving into to chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Jesus again confronts uh, paralysis, but before he does, he offers forgiveness of sin. And the religious leaders balk at this and accuse him of blaspheming. Who do you think you are, they're asking him. What kind of authority do you think you have? But Jesus confronts them and challenges their conclusions. They wanted to push back against his invisible spiritual authority to forgive sins. So he asserts his authority through something visible that can see, be seen through a physical healing. His invisible authority to forgive is evidenced by his visible authority to heal. Doing one proved his authority and his power to do the other. So the man gets up and walks. And we see in this, in this grouping that Jesus demonstrated authority over natural and spiritual barriers. The things of this world, both seen and unseen, fall under Jesus' authority. Even our sins in the spiritual realm fall under his authority. Jesus is much more than just a powerful healer as his authority continues to be shown. We move into the last group and see... Uh, even more things, more areas where Jesus demonstrates authority. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now Matthew is the the author of the gospel uh, that we're going through, and he details his calling uh, into discipleship with Jesus. Matthew's response was very sudden. It was 
likely that he had prior interactions with Jesus and exposure to his message at this point, but we aren't told that specifically. But either way, uh, he follows quickly after the call. And there's one thing that's interesting or of extra importance about his is his call came with great risk. Earlier in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus called some fishermen to join him. And the thing was, they could always go back to fishing if this Jesus thing didn't pan out. Matthew's job was a highly lucrative, well-sought-after position, and it would not be there for him when he came back. This was a moment where, where he could not change his mind later and go back to what he was. So Matthew chooses to leave that behind to follow after Jesus. Matthew was a, a tax collector, uh, which by itself was quite an insult. Uh, the simplest way uh, to sum up the reputation uh, of a tax collector would that of a greedy, money-loving Benedict Arnold, a selfish traitor. They weren't liked or appreciated. Most of their dinner invitations came from other tax collectors. But after his calling to become a follower of Jesus, Matthew has a dinner party with many guests, the kinds of people that would associate with tax collectors. We get the generic term sinners, and that could mean murderers and prostitutes, or it could just mean people that didn't follow the law. But either way, they hung out with tax collectors, so they weren't thought of too highly. And the message gets back to Jesus that the Pharisees don't approve of his company, so Jesus delivers one of my favorite lines in all the Gospels. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus didn't come to save those who don't think they need any help. He came to save people who needed a savior. Hear this. Jesus came to save the sick. He came to save the broken. He came to save the needy. How many of us walk in here on a Sunday morning pretending not to be those things? Friends, do you realize that that is exactly who Jesus came to save? If you feel inadequate, if you feel unworthy, if you feel broken, if you feel like a sinner, Jesus is like, those are my people. Jesus pushed back against the expectation of whom others had deemed worthy of saving. He said, I came to save the sick. Verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour out new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. I'll be honest, in my kind of initial reading through it, I I missed that it was John's disciples. You just sort of assume that it's the the Pharisees or the other religious leaders. This is actually John's disciples, John the Baptist. Uh, And they're asking a good question. Uh, They ask about fasting, but what they're really asking is, why aren't you doing the things the way we've always done them? Have you no respect for our traditions? And Jesus answers using an illustration of of sewing a patch uh, and wineskins Sometimes the new doesn't fit with the old. The old needs to fit into the new reality. Trying to fit the new reality into the old would damage them both. 
Jesus is saying there's nothing wrong with fasting. It has a place. He says, but I'm here. And the game and the rules have changed, and we must adapt. Sometimes saying, well, that's the way we've always done it, isn't the right answer. And not to devalue traditions, but the church can be slow to adapt. The truth should never change, but the system and the methods can. Trying to fit Jesus into the Old Testament system wasn't going to work when Jesus' authority had come to establish a new system. Verse 18, while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said, your faith has healed you. The woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowded people playing pipes, he said, go away, this girl's not dead but asleep. They laughed at him. After the crowd had been put aside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread throughout all that region. Now there's interwoven miracles here, uh, healing uh, a woman's bleeding and then raising a girl from the dead. And you see awesome faith here where both people seek out Jesus knowing he is the answer to their unsolvable problems. And what can you say about Jesus bringing a, a young girl back to life? Jesus interacted with death with an authority that we can't comprehend. He described her as sleeping, not because she wasn't dead, but because he, in his authority, was able to view death as a temporary situation. Jesus' level of power and authority is, is, is more than we can grasp. Seems like we should end with that when the raising of the girl is awesome, but Jesus isn't quite done yet. Verse 27. Jesus went on from there and two blind men following him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this, but they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the, demons, when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Ah. I like Jesus didn't heal the blind men right away. Uh, they actually had to follow after him. It was only after he entered the house that he interacted with them. It seems Jesus was, was testing their sincerity, their persistence. Uh, and then in response to their faith, he healed their blindness. And then Jesus casts out a demon, and this time it restores a man's ability to talk. And it drew much deserved amazement from the crowd. But it also drew the criticism of the Pharisees. Said he interacts with demons, he must work with them or for them. And this is where you start to see in, in Matthew's gospel that you really start to see the pushback of the Pharisees, 
Up to this point, it was, it was mostly ver- verbal complaints and, and disagreements, but, but a fight, a fight's brewing. They say he's not doing it the right way. He's not the Messiah we've been waiting for. He doesn't submit to our interpretation of the law. He hangs out with the wrong people. He doesn't come seeking our approval and our blessing. I like verse 35 as a summary. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. The Pharisees could object all they want. Jesus had more work to do. He's like, you guys go form a committee, and you decide all the things that I can and can't do? While you're doing that, I'm going to go heal people. I'm going to go bring my kingdom to the people here. So we see in this last set, that Jesus demonstrates authority over religious barriers. So the leaders and the rulers and the Pharisees, they thought that Messiah would fit in their box. And Jesus showed them that he was here to exercise his own authority, not to submit to theirs. Look at all of the areas, all the things where Jesus demonstrated his authority that we've, we've covered today. If you have your hand up, that's a long list. So a good question to ask yourself would be, so what? Why does Jesus' authority matter to me? Why do I care if Jesus extended his authority in all of these different ways? So the concluding point is this. In light of all that we've talked about today, Jesus has authority over you. If the reality is true, that Jesus demonstrates authority in all of these different ways that we talked about, who do you think you are to think that you're exempt? We're talking about the miracle healing, storm calming, dead raising, barrier breaking Jesus here. He has authority over you. The question is, will you submit to it? Now we love our freedom. It's such a core value for Americans and and particularly Alaskans. And a Jesus that demands authority in our lives can be a bit offensive. So we tend to deal with it a couple of ways. And the first is some of us just ignore it. We live life our way. We assume the role of authority over our own lives. I'm here to ask you, if that's you, If you're living life your way and not submitting to the authority of Jesus, how's that working for you? Is your way working? Are you finding the the joy, the meaning, the purpose that you're seeking? The other way that we do is we limit Jesus' authority. Jesus, I want you as the authority in my life. Now, here's how we're going to do it. God, I am willing to submit these areas of my life to you. You can have this 95%. I'm keeping this five. Can I tell you, Jesus isn't going to live in your box. He's never going to stop invading those areas of your life that you don't want to submit. Our third response to Jesus' authority is to acknowledge it and submit to it. You recognize, like the wind and the waves, the foolishness of resisting against an all-powerful, wise, and loving God. 
Now, it doesn't mean there aren't going to be some bumps along the way. Since sin entered the world, submission has been a bit of a tricky spot for humanity. But you recognize that God's plans are better than your plans, that God's ways are better than your ways. So my question for you today, if Jesus is all of these things that we've talked about, if Jesus is the king, how are you going to respond to his call in your life? My hope is that you recognize him as king and as savior. Let's pray. King Jesus, your authority and the things that you displayed are beyond our ability to truly grasp. Jesus, you are the son of God come to earth to live amongst us as our savior. Heavenly Father, you did some incredible things. You brought people back to life. You calmed a storm. You healed all kinds of diseases. You dealt with demons. Jesus, your authority extends into so many areas. And yet the area of most important, Lord, is our own life. God, I pray that we would have a willingness, have a, have a courage, have a humility to submit to your authority. God, that we would recognize your role in our lives as king. That we would stop trying to steer our own ship and instead give you the wheel. Heavenly Father, that's not easy. There's not going to be, uh, there's going to be times where we fail at that, where our selfishness wins out. Heavenly Father, would you be our guide? Would you walk us down a path that submits to the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ? We ask your help with this because we cannot do it in our own strength. And so we lean on yours. In Jesus' all-powerful name. Amen.